In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an amazing guest here with me. Mike, how are you? I'm great. How are you today, Pamela? I'm doing lovely, my friend. You are a total rock star, and I'm so pumped <laughs> to get into your story and, and have everybody share what you've shared with me, which I'm like mind blown about your journey and your trajectory and, and where you are today. So I'm psyched to get into that. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, definitely excited to uh, let your listeners hear about some of the stumbles in the journey and things that have happened along the way. So, Absolutely. I appreciate you, Mike. I appreciate you being here. Given your background and everywhere and every, every person that you are now, like, what inspired you on your journey to where you are today? What's funny is I think that I've always been inspired over the years by coaches and mentors and people around me, right? I've always been a big advocate that success leaves clues and that if we pay attention to those things and those people around us and we ask enough questions, we can be successful. What inspired me today? I have to go, I have to go to an event that happened to me during a prison sentence. And why I'm where I am today is because of a conversation that I had with somebody six weeks into a 10-year prison sentence in federal prison where somebody walked up to me and said, don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take everything from you. They can take all the apartments you own. They can take your property management companies. They can take your cars. They can take your houses. They can rip your family apart, but they can't take what's really important and what you have. And that's your desire and your knowledge. He goes, get this 10 years back. Don't let these people beat you. And that was a very inspirational comment for me at the time, because I had been beaten beyond belief, entering prison, thought my life was over. Then my wife decided to divorce me and move on with her life. And I was at my end. You know, you go from a place where you built successful companies and you've had some success and, and then you've had some stumbles along the way from living a pretty modest upper class middle life, you know, upper middle class lifestyle to all of a sudden you're in a 12 by 12 room with three guys you don't know in a two by five locker with three green outfits and five pairs of underpants. You wonder what happened to your life. And so I did feel beaten. I felt like it was over, like it was done. So this conversation that, that this guy had with me really made me turn a corner. And there's a saying in prison that says, hey, you can either do the time or let the time do you. And I chose to do the time while I was gone, which brings me to where I'm at today. Thank you so much for sharing that. I thank you so, so much for sharing that, Mike. I mean, what a journey. And I mean, you mentioned that you started successful companies and you kind of ended up in this space. And, you know, as you walk me through, like what inspired you on your business journey and sort of what you were doing prior to? So great question, right? I've been in real estate for like 30 years. Prior to that, I was in a general contracting business and had a really successful construction company and woke up one morning and I was just burnt out. I 
couldn't do it anymore. And looked at my wife at the time and said, hey, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So we decided to sell the company, sold the company, took a year off to try and decide what I wanted to do. During that time, we house hacked. And this was long before house hacking was fun or the sexy thing to do, right? And house hacked a couple of two flats. And I met a real estate agent along the way. And I've mentioned success leaves clues, but I met this real estate agent and he was really, really productive, really successful. And I thought, you know what? Let me talk to him about going into real estate. Maybe that's something I'd want to do. And I went and had a conversation with him and he said, man, I think you'd be great at it. I said, good. Could I come and, you know, shadow you and follow you around? And he said, no. He goes, you know what? I'm going to make you a cassette tape. And you listen to it and you do what I put on this tape and you'll be successful. And so I listened to that tape over and over and over again. And I went in the real estate sales business. In my first nine months in the business, I sold 78 houses because I followed some simple rules. I followed some simple principles, some fundamentals. I mastered the repetitious boredom that so many people don't want to do, right? And from there, I went on. I built a team selling 125 homes a year. Did that for about seven or eight years consecutively and realized that the market was starting to soften in 2005. Knew I was going to have to go do something else. Had always wanted to be in the apartment business and get into multifamily and own big apartment complexes. So in 2005, I syndicated my first apartment deal, small 11 units. And from there, I raised $18 million. I bought $60 million worth of real estate was like 4,000 apartments in five different states and did that in 30 months. And I built a property management company. We managed 7,500 units. That's when in 2008, when the market hit a wall, I had grown so fast and we were very unstable as a company. I was over leveraged. I paid too much for properties. I didn't pay attention to the red flags along the way. I didn't listen to people around me and I imploded in 2010. So what I tried to do was tried to keep my uh, company afloat and save my investors. So I moved money back and forth between companies and wound up being charged on wire fraud and mail fraud for charges for that, for non-disclosure, for not telling my investors what I was doing. It wasn't so much moving the money between companies because you know, my accountant and my attorney told me that it was okay if we would have put, you know, if we had notes between the companies and that, which we did. But I would take money from profitable companies, put them in non-profitable companies, thinking that the market would come back. You know, I'd been involved in recessions before and seen a 10% correction lasted 17, 18 months. But this was, you know, a 40% correction in the market and lasted seven, eight years. Some people are still affected today by it. So because of that, I tried to save my investors. I didn't want to go to them and tell them that we had failed or that we were failing and that their properties were upside down and wound up, you know, being charged on uh, federal wire fraud and mail fraud charges. So. Wow. What a, oh my God. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm like, and I mean, cause it's, it's something that you did innocently. Like you didn't think it was that severe. You're just trying to protect everyone and protect your investors, but little, you know, little did you know, right? Right, exactly. Little did you know? And it's like, these are mistakes that could cost you big time, right? So anybody who's listening right now, because I know a lot of people who are in the real estate business that are listening and a lot of them in the multifamily space or, you know, have their own funds and 
our developers and have investors that they have to cater to. So listen to what Mike just said about, mm-hmm. you know, moving things around, you know, whenever you're dealing with investors, everything has to be disclosed and transparent. I mean, that's a huge lesson there, but you know, Mike, you know, you have had such a successful real estate career. I mean, 78 houses in your first year, just your success and how big you got so fast, you know, what were some of your biggest tips on, on success? And you mentioned over leverage, if you could also sort of elaborate on that for anyone who's not in the real estate space, like, what does that mean? Because there might be a lot of people that might maybe a bit over leveraged right now. And now would be the time to sell before they, who knows what's going to happen in the next few years. So, so, you know, a couple of things that happened along the way, Pamela, I, I grew way too fast. In 2007, I bought 17 deals. It was like 2,700 units. It was just way too much inventory to try and stabilize because it was, if it would have been 2,700 units in one purchase or two purchases, it would have been different, but it was 17 transactions. So, you know, they were scattered all over and trying to, it was like juggling a lot of plates, right? And I had people in place thinking that, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing and they were just overwhelmed and weren't telling that weren't saying that they needed help and couldn't get things done. So I kind of took my eye off the ball because I was always of the opinion, hey, build the company, be the face of the company, go get investors, find more deals. Every time you close a deal, you're going to bring cash in. So I thought we could just keep it running like that. Time came where we couldn't raise any more money and the time came where we couldn't buy any more deals. But over leveraged, I was uh, 15% down on all my properties. You know, simple math says if I bought $60 million worth of real estate, I raised $18 million, 15% of 60 million is like $15 million. So I always suggest to people don't ever be anywhere outside of 65 to 75% loan to value. Make sure you're 25 to 30% in your deal in equity because it keeps your payments down. It keeps your costs down. It helps you mitigate the storm. So I was over leveraged from that standpoint. We paid too much for most of the properties that we bought. And part of that was being blinded by what was going on in the market. So if you look at today, the market is on this trajectory going straight up, right? And there almost appears that there's no bumps in that road. And what happens is you start buying properties on the way up like this, and then the market does this, you bought way too high. And that was one problem. So between being over leveraged and paying too much for properties, then the inability to be able to stabilize them fast enough. What we should have done was we should have bought a property, started doing the construction, the rehab, the value add, retenanting it, getting it back to an occupancy that was palatable, and then go on to the next deal. But we didn't. We tried to do it all at once. And granted, we got the occupancies up pretty high at an average occupancy of 92%. But when the market hit a wall and people moved out, because we were really heavy in the car and transportation industry markets. So when you look at the Ohio Valley and you've got FedEx and, and you know, car manufacturers and, you know, little businesses that make parts for car manufacturing facilities, and all of a sudden they're not making cars anymore and they're not ground transporting materials or packages anymore. Nobody has money to pay their bills. Didn't raise enough money on deals. Should have raised more money, put money in reserves, had money in escrow, and we didn't do that. I didn't pay attention to a lot of the red flags around me. You know, one thing I always tell people is, hey, don't fall in love with the deal. Don't fall in love with what you're doing. The banks were throwing money at us. You could buy anything for a period of time there. 
And once you had a couple of thousand units, the banks just loved you. And you almost looked like you couldn't do anything wrong. Matter of fact, I had a couple of buddies of mine that I was in, were in real estate with for years. One night we were out at dinner and they said, man, you've hit the big time. And I thought, man, you know, maybe we have. And it wasn't shortly after that we imploded. But it's interesting how you can grab that perception pretty quick, you know. Right. No, and I appreciate all of your tips sort of throughout the way that you've learned because it's like it's everybody's dream to own thousands of units and do this and explode and become this big like real estate stupid superstar. But you got to do it carefully. If you grow too big too fast and you can't keep up with it, your risk level is like and, and you mentioned too that it was scattered throughout different states. So yeah. it's, you know, it's hard to get to sites like that. I mean, for me, all my sites are within 15, 20 minutes of each other on purpose because I want to see everything, right? Unless you already have systems in place and like, you know, the markets well and you have a great team, but like you said, it would have been better to start off once, stabilize, be better. You know what I mean? So you could keep up and maintain with all that. I can't imagine 17 transactions, 2,700 units all at the same time. Like I can't even process that, you know, even on one site that you're dealing with general contractors and subcontractors is a whole production, let alone (laughs) for 2,700 units, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many moving parts, right? It's not like you buy a single family house and it's there and you put a tenant in it and hope that they stay there and, and they pay the utilities. And there's a lot of moving parts in a, in a multifamily deal, especially when you start to scale, right? So, you know, there's management, there's employees. I built a company, we had 138 employees. So it's interesting how fast that can happen, especially when the market is so hot. And Mike too, so like, what were some of your biggest tips of success and how you got so big so fast? Relationships. I think that this business is a relationship business, Pamela. It comes down to the fact of how well you know somebody and how close you are with somebody. And I I have some really key close relationships with people in the industry. And even today, since I've been home, you know, people have, you know, hey, listen, man, we know that things happen. And I, I have some friends that, you know, are very supportive and have said, you know, hey, we know you're going to knock it out of the park again. So, but it's relationships. It's who you know. And, uh, you know, I'm in the coaching space, right? And so my coaching clients, I'm always connecting people with people. I've always been a connector. And I think that that's important. And I have, and even more important than that is I have people in my life that are connectors that connect me. Like if I call, I called a guy this morning and I said, hey, look, I got a coaching client. He's trying to get $5 million under under contract in the next 90 days. Who do you know in these markets? And he gave me four or five leads. It's relationships. There's that old cliche, Pamela. It says, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, yeah. True, you know, so. That's awesome. Yeah, no, because like I said, it's it's everybody, anybody who's in real estate, it, it's their dream to become this big, bad, you know, real yeah. estate entrepreneur, you know, then like crush it with all these units and all these investors and yeah. stuff like that. So just interested to know like how how you scaled that. And now, you know, when, when you had mentioned it that, you know, you were imploding, you know, what was that process like for you at the time? And like, how did you get through it day by day? Because I know that there's people listening that may be going through something similar or have gone through something similar. You know, how did you push through on your day to day at that time? During which part? When, yeah. when you knew, when you realized like, crap, I'm over leveraged, things are not going so great. What do I do kind of thing? You know, 
before you actually went to prison. Yeah. So there's some stories, right? First of all, I wrote a paper that we I just had published in the Business Journal of Ethics. I co-authored it with a professor from the University of Minnesota. And it get, actually gets taught at the collegiate level uh, for forensic accounting classes and, and sales and marketing classes. And I tell a story in it, that I, I, I start this paper with a story. Um, I had a board of advisors and 12 men and women who were much smarter than I was. Eight of them were in other industries outside of real estate, manufacturing, uh, shipment, uh, procurement, you know, I mean, other industries, they, these were, these were smart business owners. And, um, I would go to them once a quarter and we would talk about my business and they'd give me ideas and direction and, and help me, you know, I think that that was part of what, you know, I'm, I'm a huge success leaves clues guy, you know, and I would go to, I go to people and ask questions, right? How do you do this? What do you do? But I tell this story, I'm walking into a board meeting in the beginning of 2010. And um, I have all the intentions in the world of talking to the board about what's going on in my business being upside down. Because we imploded about the third quarter in 2009, where it got to a point where we knew we were, we were going to be in trouble. Now, did I know I was going to be in criminal trouble? Absolutely not. But we knew we were going to have to do something with the company. I met in the parking lot by my in-house legal counsel. Now, here's somebody I pay a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to thinking he's got my back. And he says to me, hey, listen, I don't want to talk to the board tonight about any of this stuff. And I'm like, why? I said, you know, we're meeting with these people to talk to them about how upside down we are. And what can we do to right the ship? He goes, yeah, but we don't have enough information. I said, how do we not have enough information? We can't pay our bills. Our occupancies have dropped. We can't re-rent uh, properties. We can't give enough um, uh, concessions in order to fill them. I said, you know, the numbers aren't working. He goes, yeah, but we need more time. I said, what do we need? He goes, give me two weeks. We'll have a conference call and we'll get everybody on the phone. And that never happened. But I walked into that meeting with a totally different conversation. And I think that that was one of those situations where if I would have handled it differently, I knew in my gut of guts, you know, I built this company to this point. Now I'm going to let people tell me what to do to try and straighten out a problem that they kind of backed us into. So I doubted myself, right? I started to doubt myself. And I think that as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, as a business owner, as a woman or a man who runs a company, at some point you start to, to doubt yourself. You start to doubt where you're at and your ability. And that's where I found myself in that parking lot that night. I thought, God, you know, I pay this guy a couple hundred grand a year and, you know, he can't be all that wrong. So, you know, I think that that meeting, if that meeting would have went different, my life might have went a little bit different too. Mm. Maybe not. But that was, I look at that as one of those downfalls. I never told my wife about business. I never, we never talked about it because, you know, it was always so up and down, right? I just never wanted her to worry, right? And she worried way over the top about everything. And, and I wanted to keep her from, from the challenges. Now I'd share, hey, we closed another deal or a couple more investors or this or that. But I think one of the smartest things I ever did was keep her away from the business as much as I did. Because when she knew nothing, when it when we imploded. So in uh, in 2011, 
after Christmas holidays. Now, remember, my wife had, doesn't know anything, but in 2011, I'm going back to work and I asked my wife, I said, hey, she was taking, this was right after the holidays. I asked, asked her, uh, she was taking my daughter to school and I said, are you coming back? She said, no. I said, I said, well, could you come back? I need to talk to you. She says, out of clear blue nowhere, she goes, why are you going to jail? And I thought, oh my God, how did you know? You know, so like I spent the next four hours telling her about everything wound up in my attorney's office. And my attorney didn't think that that there was going to be a problem, right? That there were no criminal charges or anything like that going on. And then it just kind of imploded from there and turned upside down from there. But it was um, was a crazy period of time, right? So from that point, though, from the point of of those two couple of meetings, my life really started to go off the rails. So that meeting with my attorney in the parking lot, um, I started to doubt myself, I kind of came off the rails, wasn't making good choices, wasn't making good business decisions. And then that incident with my wife. And from there, you know, it wasn't shortly after that I was in court being indicted. I left court that day and I said to her, I said, look, I, I said, I'm going to go to prison and we don't know for how long. And I said, we have a couple of choices. We could, you know, I can give you an envelope with some money in it and you can hope that it doesn't run out. But I said, I think we're better off if I build a business and you, you know, keep you and the kids in the house. So I went out and I built a property management company. And for the next two years, because that was 2011, I went to prison in 2013. For the next two years, I worked seven days a week. 20 hours a day, I built another property management company, which was a scattered site, uh, single family uh, residential management company. And when I went to prison, she managed about 240 units. So she had a good business. It kept her and the kids in the house while I was gone. But my life was off the rail. It was, I was so worried, so scared. I was worried about what was going to happen to my family and my kids my wife and how was I going to help them to keep it all together while I was gone, you know? So that was kind of a long answer to your question, but you know, I, I hope I got you there. So. Yeah, I know you did. I thank you so much for sharing that, Mike. Thank you so much. I mean, in those moments, like what kept you sort of going because that it sounds like you hit rock bottom. You kept going off the rails, off the rails, and then you're getting closer to a rock bottom. What, kept you motivated every day because this is the type of stuff that would have me sitting in my bed and like not do anything almost you know what kept you going during the hardest times yeah so i've never been like that right i've never been one to to buy in you know to to get so stuck that i can't move um and i know people i i you know let me get if i can do anything with my message and give some hope and some inspiration to people you don't have to be stuck you know, that kid in prison said to me, don't let these people beat you. And and I would just say back, don't let the situation beat you. There's more to life than that. There's more to life than just, you know, we all have demons. And I believe, my personal belief is that we all have our own personal prison somewhere that we're stuck in. And you can beat it or not. And I think it, it's a, it becomes self-discipline. It becomes being able to reach out and ask for help when you need it. It becomes being honest and transparent with other people. And was there any like mantra or anything that you kept like saying to yourself as you were going through all this, like day by day, especially as you were waiting for the indictment where like you knew, but like it just 
was like time. So it's like, how did you? What was going through my mind was I have to build this company for my wife and kids because mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to happen. To me. Right. Right. And I had no idea I was going to, you know, I mean, I had no idea how long I was going to go away for. So, but you know, there's some good news in all this, right? While I was gone, I reinvented myself. You know, what was important before is probably not as important today. While I was gone, you know, I had that conversation with that guy when I walked in the gym and he said, don't let these people beat you. And I made a decision at that point that I wasn't going to let them beat me. I was 35 pounds overweight. He said, come to the gym, work, start working out every day, lose weight. You're going to feel better. And I did. I started going to the gym every day. I started losing weight. I started feeling better about myself. I came home in better shape physically than I've ever been in my life. I went to college. I got a four-year degree, in a bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books. I wrote two home study courses. I wrote an ethics course. I taught real estate, investing in multifamily and property management and ethics in prison for five years. I taught Bible studies for five years. I was on an outreach program, went into the community. I told my story 40 times to small business owners, local corporations, and the major colleges in the area. And that's where I met the professor uh, that we co-authored this paper. It's an ethics paper that we just had published on the Business Journal of Ethics. So I didn't let him beat me, right? Because today, I came home in better shape physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually than I'd ever been in my life. And today... I'm working on the financial piece, but you know, I know it'll happen in time. Amen, Mike. That's that's an underdog story right there. Like, don't let them beat you, right? And at that point, it's like, you know, anyone listening in is probably like, oh my God, that's rock bottom. That's oh my God. But it's like, don't let these people beat you. And that fueled you and motivated you to propel further. I mean, look at all the amazing things that you did in the process, right? Yeah. You're doing the time. You're not letting the time do you, which I find just so remarkable that you turned it all around with a whole new different perspective. Because I don't know many people that would have survived the way that you did and turned it into such a positive spin. And, you know, I just I commend you tremendously for that because it takes a lot of heart, a lot of courage to move forward from that, you know, and to do it in such a positive and beautiful, beautiful way. And now when you were released, I mean, what was that transition like for you sort of coming back into everything and like, you know, the adaptability? I mean, you're an entrepreneur by trade, I can tell. So is <laughs> I feel like it's probably easier for you because you're used to adapting and problem solving. But, you know, what was that transition like? Yeah, so interesting, right? I was gone for seven and a half years and just, you know, for seven and a half years, you you walk around and you see the same five, six, 700 guys every day. And you are in this environment that is pretty much the same. You know, you go to prison, it's like you died and your whole life went on ahead of you. I mean, I came home technology, you know, let's just talk about technology was so different. Right. And I remember my 13 year old daughter said to me, she was five when I left, when I came home, she was 13. Right. And she said to me, she goes, dad, relax. She goes, you know how to do it once before, you'll figure it out again. And, you know, wisdom, right, from, yes. from the child. But uh, it was so cool because she was right. And, you know, over time here, I've, I've figured it out. I've figured out this social media thing and computers and technology and, and how to do things again. Because you don't have any of those resources in prison, right, unless you want to get in trouble if you get caught with them, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I had none of those resources. And then you come home and, you know, you're – 
your family's kind of torn apart. And, you know, so there's all of that to deal with. So there's a lot of emotion and a lot of smart brain technology things you got to think through and figure out. You're right. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I'm figuring it out. You know, I came home, I started a company, I coaching and training. I'm providing information and knowledge for people because I have so much information and knowledge from over the year. I love that, Mike. I love that you're giving back now and you're kind of like sharing your story in order to help empower people, you know, to take it to the next level. That that's you know, and and that no matter where you've been, doesn't dictate your future, which I think is the most powerful thing, right? Because you could have sat there and just let let life do its course and not do anything about it, just kind of give up, throw your hands in the air, but oh, okay. But you did all this and like, look at where you are now. It's just, it's just so remarkable. And I truly do commend you because it just takes so much character and so much heart. And, you know, like my biggest question is always this, like, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now in your life experiences? Slow down and think things through. Don't make so many quick, rash decisions and choices. Slow down and think things through. Amen to that. And who would you say was like your biggest source of inspiration, like throughout in your early years or any at any point in your life? Boy, I think there's been a number of people along the way. I don't know that there's just one person. You know, listen, my dad, of course, for years growing up was, you know, his work ethic. I learned work ethic from him. I don't come from a family that was an entrepreneurial family. I don't come from a family that knew anything about real estate. And my dad said to me one time in his infinite wisdom, he said, listen, if you ever go into business for yourself, go into food, shelter, or clothing. And I've always been in shelter between construction and real estate. And, you know, for the most part, it's never failed me. I love that. I love that, Mike. I just, I adore your story and just like who you are and what you represent and just like all that you're doing now. So if you could give us a little bit of intel, like what's going on in Mike's world, like this next six to 12 months, what's what's new in the horizon for you, my friend? Yeah, sure. I built a company called My Core Intentions, coaching and training platform. I teach multifamily investors how to scale their business and grow their business, but live a better quality of lifestyle. I also work with the other support people around that, right? So if you're a property manager or you're a broker or you're in some form or fashion supportive of that investor as a professional, I I work with those individuals as well, helping them work with the investors more and build their business, right? I was very productive in the real estate sales business, so I can teach people how to prospect and be productive and build their business and find and source deals and you know, a lot of things like that. While I was gone, I wrote two books, published one last year, uh, late last year called Exit Plan, Your Complete Guide to Multifamily Investing and Why You Need an Exit Plan Before You Buy. You know, over the years, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in coaching and training and seminars, great teachers, great coaches out there, but everybody teaches you how to get in a deal, how to find a deal, how to operate it. Nobody teaches you how to get out. And my whole philosophy is understand the exit, which doesn't mean you're selling and giving up control all the time, but understand the exit and how to get there. So, you know, there's that old saying in real estate, right, that you make money when you buy the deal, but we don't realize it until we get out of it. That's when we realize that profit. So I 
do three boot camps throughout the year. I do one on uh, understanding multifamily, one on multifamily acquisitions, and then one on property management. And then in October, I do a three-day virtual summit where I'll have 20 speakers from around the country participate and bring knowledge and three days of knowledge and information. We did it last year and it was just off the chains. So it's a a great event. My whole program is to give back. How do I provide value back to the investor through mentorship and coaching and training? So I love it, Mike. I love what you're up to. And I love that you're about bringing back value and still sticking to your true core values, you know, because even through everything that you've been through, you didn't let your values break not once, which I respect so, so much. So thank you so much. Like, and now where can everybody find you, your awesomeness, your courses, info about summits, all of that good stuff. Sure. So uh, my website is mycoreintentions.com. That's where you can, you know, grab hold of any podcasts or information or, you know, material. I'd love to give your listeners a copy of my book. They can go download free copy of uh, Exit Plan. It is at mycoreintentions.com forward slash exit plan. And if you want to reach me personally, it's Mike at My Core Intentions. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate you sharing your story today. I, I, I just can't wait to see where you go from here and just keep growing and keep crushing it. And just thank you so much for, for being vulnerable, sharing your story and just being the awesome person that you are. Thank you. Thank you. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode. Oh.